0: Welcome to Dragon Talk.
1: Yay, Dragon Talk!
0: Sorry. I'm sure that was...
1: Clippy. Yes! Clippy!
0: I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by...
1: Shelly Mazenoble.
0: Mazenoble. Noble. We are here for the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Yeah, we are. you live on the interwebs, as well as in your earbuds...
1: That was the last of the applause, so don't worry.
0: <laughs> there will be more applause For coming when you need to. We'll, we'll shine the, the light.
1: I mean, you may listen to this podcast and spontaneously burst into applause because there's a lot to cheer about.
0: There's a lot to cheer about, right? Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons. is uh, a way that you can connect with fans, fans, and friends and family through the interwebs like we are doing right now. Um, yes. I keep hearing lots of wonderful things about people getting together with their groups that used to only meet in person playing online. Uh, we are making as many resources as available to that uh, in case you haven't heard or uh, know about it. Dungeons and Dragons on the website. Check it out. com. if you want the exact URL. it's I think I have this memorized. com slash remote. R-E-N-O-T-E is how you spell remote, in case you were wondering? Um, and there's tons of stuff on there. We're releasing new things every day, uh, weekday, at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Um, we, this week we released some really big things, including the rule book from the D&D Essentials Kit, as well as the Adventure from that kit, uh, all for free. You can access it uh, through various platforms, including uh, D&D Beyond, Fantasy Grounds, or Roll20, uh, or just download it um, through uh, Dungeon Master's Guild. We there, we want you to play D&D as much as you can and give you all the resources yes. to make it happen.
1: And I just, I love that people are just still playing. That they're just like, okay, yeah. can't meet in person, we'll just take it online. And that new people are starting to, like, this is a good time to learn how to play Dungeons and Dragons. So
0: You're right, as well as learn good. how to play uh, online using our, our virtual tabletops. We did a few shows um on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash D&D, called Learning Roll 20 and Learning Fantasy Grounds. The first episodes of those went out last week, I believe, and cool. they are dis- specifically designed to get over that hump of getting these platforms ready, and then now how do I start my first game as a Dungeon Master or or as a player. So that content is out there. We want to make it as easy and accessible as possible. I know there is a a, you know a learning curve to a certain extent. Um, I experienced that myself, so I'm watching these shows in uh, anticipation of learning and getting to know more about how to run games in Roll20 and Fantasy Ground, and uh, I hope you do too.
1: I love it. And it's not like anyone knew that this was coming, so we did not plan for it, but I think it's really cool how everybody, um, the fans, the community our teammates our partners have really come together quickly to come up with this content to help people stay connected through D&D so mm-hmm. pat on the back for everybody
0: everybody but get well not high really high pat, high pat high on the back
1: cuz we shouldn't touch people right now
0: but get a virtual elbow bump it's <laughs> good stuff um, Yes. there is of course tons of D&D products out there for sale there's the explorer's guide to wildmount Amazing yes. resource for everyone uh, who plays Dungeons & Dragons, but more specifically, if you are a critter and following the second campaign of Critical Role by Matt Mercer, um, you will find all the information to potentially adventure in the land of Mount on Alexandria. in that. Um, but it's also just great as a testament to, you know, homebrew, right? Like it takes yeah. D&D ideas and deities and concepts and... Matt Mercer has put his own spin on it, and you get to see how that is done. Um, so it's a great tool for Dungeon Masters as well. Plus yes. there's some cool spells and uh, fun stuff in there. Um, my and favorite some table. cool maps. Cool maps from, from our, Devin Reader, which uh, we talked to the, last week.
1: Our last week's guests, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I, my favorite thing in there, I, I, I talked about this on D&D News, but there's a table where you can find out what your favorite food is, your character's favorite food is, based on what oh. region in uh, uh, in Wildmount you're from, and I love stuff like that because very rarely I do, do we, we talk about regional cuisine in in the fantasy worlds that we make up, and I love oh. that those details are in there, and it's just fun to roll on a table.
1: It is. I tables are the best, but I, yeah. let's look anything that that personalizes your character a little bit more. Like I've never really thought about what my character's favorite food is, right? And now I will.
0: Now you will. Is it dumpling? Because I can
1: use that table in any game.
0: Is it I'm doing uh, it? are is your are your characters vegetarian? I mean, if you're playing a tabaxi, they're probably it's not probably vegetarian. Not. No. She right? loves
1: like a probably fish. Some fish. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fancy feast.
1: Some kibbles and bits. <laughs> kibbles. And, and, bits. Bits. <laughs> and bits.
0: And bits. And uh, bits. so that's exciting. Uh Explorer's Guide to Wild Mountain is, of course, available now on all those platforms, uh, or for order. Um And we've got some other fun stuff coming up with Mythic Odysseys of Theros is coming June 2nd. It's a fantastic book uh, all about how to run a campaign with a classical theme uh, inspired by the Magic the Gathering plane of Theros, um, uh, which is inspired by Greek gods and myths of our own world, uh, constellations, heroic uh quests such as Achilles and Odysseus and all that uh can be done. And also there's a whole bunch about uh the afterlife and and uh how to come back from that within the mythos there. So check that out June second. Yes. You'll you'll get more info on that. And we'd love for you to order that through your local game store if at all possible. Uh it is just a, a fact during this time that many small businesses are hurting uh, from folks not being able to travel and they don't get as much foot traffic within them. Uh, so if you want to support your local communities through your local game stores, we ask that you try to pre-order or buy um, uh, D&D materials through your local store. Many, people, uh, many of the stores out there are doing curbside pickup or deliveries mm. or, or, or ways to make ends meet that way. And we encourage you to do that as much as you can and uh, support those stores. They're awesome.
1: We want them All right. to keep going.
0: I think now is the perfect time for us to talk about something extremely important in this segment. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. I am Greg Tito, and I am joined today by Mr. Chris Perkins. Hello. Greetings. Uh, Today on this segment uh, where we like to delve into a specific topic of D&D lore just for fun and games uh, or to use uh, an applicable way in your dungeon mastering, uh, we are going to talk about Duergar, which uh, you may not realize was pronounced that way. It took me a while to really kind of suss out how to pronounce Duergar. I think I said Dowergar d- uh, d- or, or so. some other messed up pronunciation. Actually, am I doing that actually correctly? It
2: has two canonical pronunciations. Un- what, unusual. what is that? One is Duergar. The other is Dwergar. 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 Yeah. Dwergar. Yeah. Say it with a bit of an accent. So one, one goes from like three syllables, Duergar to Dwergar. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can say it with a bit of an accent. I think that's cool.
0: Yeah. Right. It feels, feels right. Yeah. Um, and they are, uh, dwarves that have lived in the underdark,
2: uh, for, for ages. They're dwarves uh, that went bad in the underdark. Yeah. Um, so theirs is a sad, uh, tale. Um, they were dwarves who were basically enslaved by mind flayers for a very, mm-hmm. very, very, very long time. And as you know, any any race that is enslaved by Mind Flayers doesn't come out of that um, not having been fundamentally transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Dwargar have gray skin and a very sober, somber, grim outlook on life. Um, their freedom was hard fought, uh, but... The mind flayers basically stole from the Durgar their imagination and their love of craft. And so imagine a dwarf who is bereft of inspiration and joy, who basically toils and works only because that's all they can do and because their greed and their desire to, for quantity over quality sort of propels them through life. Uh, these Dorgar are unhappy. They are, they revel in their unhappiness in a way. They just cannot experience joy. It is completely absent from their culture. It is absent from everything you see in their culture. Uh, they have a very functional aspect to everything that they produce and no real aesthetic to it. Um, hmm. So... Uh, If you take all artistry and uh, compassion and passion out of dwarves, what you're left with is Dwargar. Now, they did get something from the mind players that they didn't have before, which was psionics. Dwargar first appeared in the first edition Monster Manual 2. And uh, in those old stats for monsters, the, the bottom line was always a line about psionics. And this was one of the first sort of bipedal races that kind of leaned heavily into the, into the sonic system, and of course, the mind flayers gave Dorgar sonics to make them more useful as thralls. But ultimately, it was that sonic talents that uh, kind of propelled the Dorgar toward freedom as well. Uh, mm. Among the things that they could sonically do to themselves were turn themselves invisible. They could also enlarge to ogre size, making them even more formidable as shock troops and combatants.
0: And they do that psionically, not through, through, through magic? It
2: is, well, psionics is magic. a version of magic, uh, sort of skinned in a certain way, um, and uh, magic of the mind. And, uh, but that basically, that's what they're doing. They are physically altering themselves psionically. Um, they right. also can have other psionic capabilities as well and psionic powers similar to the way a lot of mind flayers do. Although those can be customized from Dorgar to Dorgar, they also uh, have um, resistance to certain types of magic to make them uh, more effective as shock troops and warriors. But the two things that most people know about Dorgar in terms of their abilities is their ability to turn invisible and their ability to assume uh, large size.
0: And having a, uh, a foe in you know relatively low level D and D that is always invisible or always has the ability to turn invisible is really terrifying. Right. Because you're always like, who knows
2: what is around? Yeah. It's good for Durgar cause they can insinuate them. So they can make their way through the underdark and get, you know, slip past things that they don't want to fight, but they can also slip into settlements, drow settlements or underground other settlements. They can, they can make their way to the surface, although they're not prone to because Durgar have sunlight sensitivity Mm. Um, as a lot of underdark races do, the sunlight um, hurts them—not wounds them, but it annoys them enough that they don't tend to go out. Yeah, uh, they're they're very much entrenched in the in the darkest corners of the underdark, where they build cities. Um, Forgotten Realms has a number of noteworthy ones. We showcased one in Out of the Abyss, a fifth edition adventure set in the Underdark. Cracklestone. That's it. Right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And there's, a, there's a big red dragon who lives in there with them.
0: Do they usually have uh, affinity,
2: affinity to dragons, or is that unique? Uh, that's, that's sort of unique to Um But, uh, you know, Durgar are there's a level of pragmatism to them. If they know there's a big dragon living nearby, they will either mm-hmm. try to leverage that for their own gain or learn to abide by it. In the case of the dragon Thembershoud, they feed it, and it helps fuel their furnaces.
0: Did um, when the mind flayers enslaved them? Were they prim- primarily used as
2: shock troops? Uh, you know, were they a military enslavement? They were. They were both used for military purposes and for construction purposes. I mean, if you needed hard labor done or anything like that, Durgar they have you know strong backs, and strong arms. They can they can toil. Endlessly mm-hmm. um, and so they did um, the- you mentioned the
0: lack of craft though so that so that they they were just unimaginative in their
2: architecture well, that was bled out of them by the mind flares,
0: so oh, so it was like a more of um like you know we 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 only encouraged uh these types of characteristics to procreate, is that what you're saying yeah,
1: yeah,
2: and so okay. any any creativity they had before they were enslaved, just disappeared. Now, ultimately, freedom was gained with the, – um, the Durgar themselves uh, have a very similar story to the Gith. The Gith were liberated by a champion. Basically, they had to have a a, a, a messiah figure rise up in their ranks and lead them to freedom. In Gith society, that was the champion, Gith. Uh, who basically led the, uh, the Gith to freedom and then later the Gith split into the two fractious races, Githyanki and Githzerai. Dorgar had their own liberator who was a sort of demigod-like figure named Latagor. And Ladagor would uh, not only lead the Dorgar to freedom, uh, but also then become this sort of worshipped as a god figure and was basically elevated to godhood by that act. Mm. Is he still operating as a demigod? Yes, well now now basically has with with all the the worship of Duragar behind him is now a full fledged god. Um ah. there are two Duragar gods of note, both of which are described in Volo's Guide to Monsters. The other is Deep Duera, who was mm. she was Latagor's lieutenant, basically, um through this uh resistance. The revolt, the revolt. yes. Uh, but she was, um, her pan- her portfolio when she became, uh, a lesser God under Latagur, her portfolio is basically the extermination of mind flayers and the development of your psionic potential. Um, mm. so, uh, the two of them basically are the core two deities of Durgar. Durgar are not religious as a general thing, although they have these gods, they don't Practice or re, uh, revere them in the usual way they're they're just super powerful figures that the Dogar respect and honor um, and owe mm-hmm. their you know freedom to in a way How did uh, um, deep Duera get her moniker
0: there like deep is it just because it's from from the deeps or you know you have to call upon your psionics from the deeps, or is it just a uh, that, a that is a
2: very good question um, we don't say i th- I don't think. Um, where her name comes from. Um,
0: it's, re- it's evocative, though. I just like that. It's like, she's yeah. not just
2: Duera, she's Deep Duera. Deep Duera. She's How very deep. deep. Everything yeah, about I, Duera is you know, deep down. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, Latagor is known as the Grim One. She doesn't have a particular um, moniker besides Deep Duera. She's just always been called that. I don't know why. Uh, her, I suspect Deep is not actually part of her name. It's just they refer to her as that because she's... Um, She's with them. In in mind and spirit, the deeps. she is from the deeps. Um, yeah. Uh it's fascinating. Yeah,
0: uh, I like the idea of a kind of version of dwarf, you know, because we we often see uh you know uh the, the evil versions of humans, mm. evil versions of elves and blah blah blah, and then having these ads uh, a cheerless, unhappy version is is almost you know, not to mention their abilities, kind of terrifying. It's like, oh yeah, could you imagine yeah. living in such a, a a place that was free of of joy? And um, you know, part of me because Duogar, you said was what it was the second monster manual. So was that like seventy five?
2: Uh, the second monster manual? No, I think that released in like eighty or eighty one. But I have to double check. Oh, okay. Well,
0: the reason I ask that is because it feels. Um and here you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels very cold war, these doergar. Mm-hmm. It feels like a, a a um, you know, probably misconception, but it feels like the way uh we were taught about Soviet
2: culture in a way that there was Yeah, sort of the brutalism and the, the sort of the the starkness of uh or or you know the the devaluation of art and the uh the working working as a uh, sort of a, a functioning unit, um, just sort of getting by. Uh, it's there's there's definitely aspects to that. I like I like the Soviet analogy. That's 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 a pretty good one actually. And um, there there's also a thing about Durgar that they can never have enough. You know, they want more treasure, mm-hmm. but the treasure doesn't give them pleasure. They just it just they they want it. Um, it makes them. Uh, it makes them very much hated uh, among all other races in the Underdark because they just conquer and take and it's never enough. So they conquer more and they take more and never enough. It's like they're, they're just reaching for that, looking for that rush or that pleasure moment and then never being able to get there because life is all about toil and they can never be satisfied with anything.
0: Wow. Uh, I kind of want to invite a duergar to a party. And uh, cheer them up a little bit.
2: Indeed, yes. <laughs> now, um, the, your chances of encountering a Duragar if you're not in the Underdark are pretty slim. Um, but if you're running, yeah, an they under- don't travel to the. They don't travel to the surface very often. No, right? No, yep. they don't. And so, but if you are running an Underdark campaign or a campaign that has like subterranean Dwarven enclaves in the mountains and things like that, the Duragar menace is a real one, and it can be. It can be frightful to have to deal with them because, like you say, their invisibility um, is certainly mm-hmm. working to their advantage. Uh, the fact that they can become these big hulking juggernauts enlarged uh, makes them tremendously frightful, right, because they can sneak in anywhere and then all of a sudden,
0: there are these huge monsters yeah. that you have to deal with and yes. it's, it's that, that juxtaposition is is really kind of cool. I also like the idea mm-hmm. of of uh, using them in a campaign or in an adventure. Um, That is uh, uh, encased like like in a bottle episode or something like that, and you know that there's a Dwargar with you trapped somewhere. Mm. And how do you deal with that? Almost like a like an alien, uh, uh, the movie Alien situation. Right. Yes.
2: Yes. Another thing you can do is is uh, like you know there's a there's like a murderer in a in a dwarven stronghold, and you don't know who it is, and it turns out to be a Dwargar who's basically infiltrated the place. Now uh, in Volo's Guide, we introduce Dwargar with Optional psionic powers that, uh, uh, such as instead of the ability to enlarge the ability to shrink down to like <laughs> mouse size, which is great if you're a Durgar spy Yeah, and you want to you know, stay in a place for a long time and not be noticed and sort of crawl through the vents and ducts of a Durgar stronghold. Um, a saboteur would also be, would also find that ability useful.
0: There's an honey. I shrunk the Durgar. Exactly.
2: Nice. And then on top of that, we've also introduced this idea of Duragar fused with machinery. Uh, that is Durgar who have basically been stuck inside golem like creatures and power them with their own bodies. Like, um, you know, uh, the movie Aliens, that ancient film about, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, where she's got the power she's got loader. The power loader. Uh, Get away from her, you Imagine a, a smaller yeah. version of that that has a duragar inside it but functionally operates the same way with big tools, hammers and drills and things attached to it. Uh, Dorgar are fond of making these sort of heavy industrial machines. But in order to Mm -hmm. power them, they have to basically, the Dorgar has to be put in against its will and shackled and basically pinned in uh, with like spikes in its flesh so that its pain is what drives the machine. Oh, and uh, we've got the uh, Chris. Yeah, exactly. I feel terrible now. Exactly. So in Bolo's guide there are a couple uh, monsters like this, which are a fusion of Dorgar and Construct, and of course they're used for all the heavy lifting jobs and crap jobs and things like that, and they really have no choice. So it's like the Dorgar didn't learn. They, they got their freedom, but they didn't learn the lessons of being enslaved by the mm. Mind Flayers. They're, they're they're as bad as their former masters in that regard. Right. And now they're just doing it, these tortures to themselves or and to others it, potentially, to... but mostly to themselves. Uh, yeah. They don't do it too much to others because they can't stand the company of others. So they have to do it to themselves in a way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, they're, they're anti-social down to their exactly. core. And yeah, yeah, there's,
2: there's very little redeeming, although uh, you can also, you can play Duragar characters, but I think if you're a character um, who's a Duragar and you're not somber, and and dour in nature, then you were probably not raised in Dorgar society. There, there's probably some story there of you having been distanced from that culture. Yeah, I could definitely see a uh, a
0: campaign or a character or a player wanting to play against type, and then you know try to figure out where is this is this nurture or this is nature? You know, what is what what makes the core of your being? Uh, you know, there's that's a lot of. D&D stories. Yes. There, but I think no, I haven't seen many
2: people do that with Duergar. So. Right. Yes. And you know, it's, it really, they really are a sad tale because they are very much victims, but at the same time, they're just s- propagating this endless cycle of dreary and dreariness and misery. And maybe it would mm-hmm. take a new God or a new champion to break them out of their funk, but it would have to be pretty significant. Now I would be remiss if I didn't point out that in fourth edition, we, we, we kind of messed with Duergar a little bit. Um, first of all, I don't remember what did you what did we do to, to Duergar? We first thing we did is we gave them beard quills. So, like they can use yeah, their beard as yeah, quills. Got, well, not not writing quills, but like porcupine quills. Oh, uh, and okay. that they could basically uh, fire quills out of their beards, <laughs> like. Like their manticores, yeah, like like that exactly, kind of attack. Exactly. So oh. that was weird, um, but we did it. Uh, so that's <laughs> something to play with if you're so inclined. Uh, the other thing we did, which is a little less bizarre, is we very much uh, leaned into this idea that um, Asmodeus has taken a personal interest in the Dorgar and sees mm. them as as ripe for uh, uh, devilish. Uh, infiltration, um, Durgaard lawful evil. They tend to be yeah. tyrants in a lot of ways, um, and so Asmodeus is lawful evil. And uh, there's this notion. It seems like some synergy there. There is this notion that Asmodeus has been for some time impersonating Latigore, that oh. the Durgaard god is in fact Asmodeus now. Like the real Latagor is locked up somewhere or chained in the bowels of hell. And whenever Agur is worshipped or called upon, it is in fact Asmodeus answering the call. It is Asmodeus Hmm. granting spells. It is Asmodeus doing all the godly things and driving the Durgar toward a purpose. And I think that's pretty cool. Interesting. That is interesting because then you're like, what about then is.
0: Deep Duera going to be the the hero? Possibly. Or, you know, is she going to have to save
2: her old paramour? Potentially. Uh, there's there's a whole yeah. whole bit there, and the idea that you know maybe there are even Durgar who kind of know that Asmodeus is running the show now, but they've basically been they don't because he's made deals with them. You know, he's yeah. like, he can they can summon devils now, or they can channel fiendish power from the nine hells. Yeah, they're all for it. You know, so there's there's that sort of corruptive element. That could run through a Durogar storyline, which is fascinating.
0: Yeah, and it could be, you know, uh, alongside what's happening with uh, descent to Avernus, right? I mean, it's oh, absolutely, very much in line. Absolutely, yes. Cool. Well, um, that feels even more Soviet to a certain extent. You know, that there's <laughs> <laughs> this uh, corrupting influence, and you were saying like, what would be the the thing that would change them? And maybe we, you know, someone runs a uh, a Chernobyl like accident happens. That's uh, fantastic. That changes everything about their society based on this uh a- a- event. Uh and part of me wants to think that you know the the dragon uh that we we uh, dramatized in out of the abyss uh th- thermachar thermashot um yeah maybe that's that causes some type of thing uh, that occurs and everyone kind of changes after that. I, yeah, there's already this that
2: concept of in the underdark, the phasorous, which is this kind of underdark radiation. Um, maybe maybe they try to channel that or infuse that into their factories and items or they start hoarding it mm-hmm. and siphoning it off and it just catalyzes with something in an unexpected way and suddenly you've got this phasers induced radioactive explosion that Becomes Chernobyl of the Underdark. I think that's a fantastic idea for a story. I love it.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, we'll get Craig Mason on it. By the way, how can people get in touch with you, uh, Chris, and and uh, hopefully cheer you up after talking about Duergar?
2: Good question. I am on Twitter at Chris Perkins DND. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so
0: much. It is a pleasure to be able to speak with you, uh, and it looks like you're having a, a grand old time with your, your, with your bookshelves behind you. And I love that you have the dungeon uh, uh, magazines that you often refer to on these segments. Now you have them at your fingertips. I do. Fingertips. In fact, I
2: just unpacked those recently just to clear some stuff out of my nice. garage. Yeah. Excellent. Now I need to do my
0: go-go gadget arms and, and pick up the, nice. uh, all the adventures I have yes. behind me and start thumbing through them. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back with some more lore you should know in the future. I feel like I know so much more. Uh, I, after I can't having, even
1: believe it's possible.
0: Right. Our brains have expanded beyond belief. We're kind of like a battery that gets gets hot and expands. That's what our brains are like right now.
1: It's crazy. Like it's it almost is too painful
0: right now. <laughs> We gotta put that put that knowledge back in.
1: <laughs> There's almost too much knowledge. I exactly. may have to like remove some knowledge, like maybe the theme song from Facts of Life. And you're like, keep you this take the good, in there. I, I
0: don't know what happened because next. I don't know
1: it anymore. I just don't. What happened? Yeah.
0: you take the chaotic but, evil. What, what
1: What do you take? And <laughs> what do you do with them?
0: Joe Blair, what do we take? <laughs> Tootie. Tootie. Natalie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Mrs. Garrett. <laughs> Mrs. Garrett.
0: I'm keeping that knowledge. Yes, yeah, sorry, you got that.
1: I'm impressed uh, that you also had that knowledge, though.
0: I do. I was a big fan of uh, of Facts of Life. I really? Mean, yeah. I, yeah. I had an older sister. She was, you know, right in that, you know, yeah, target like, audience for Facts of Life.
1: I feel like that, uh, I feel like it spoke to both
0: oh, genders. Yeah.
1: yeah. Why not?
0: And I will always have a crush on Joe for like forever because Joe. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Joe is who you had a crush on. Yeah. Oh, I thought that it would be Blair.
0: Hmm. I mean, I married a Blair, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you kind of married a Tootie as well, because I think Tootie was the mm. theater one.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, but she cannot work on an engine at all.
1: No. So it was like Joe's like ability to change your oil that you were like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That's right. And her um, cool like side ponies that she yeah she had her two little side ponies that met in the back for a full pony.
0: I mean, I knew none of that, that was, terminology. Like, her
1: signature hairstyle.
0: <laughs> but I loved it.
1: Yeah, it's good
0: stuff. Um, speaking of things that are really important, uh, and, uh, pertaining to facts of life that we now know and remember, we remember all that stuff, but uh, yep. you know, it's just the theme song that we don't remember unless we <laughs> roll a really good, uh, uh intelligence check.
1: And we remove other knowledge from our brain pans.
0: I feel like there's someone we need to call who will also give us a lot more information about science. I know. Perhaps.
1: I feel like we're a. About to have our minds just blown wide open.
0: I mean, and then even more we so. can just
1: fit all the knowledge in there because there there will be no containment.
0: We will expand, yes, ooh, our consciousness I, into the star field that is the Dungeons and Dragons community. Ooh. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know about that one, but let's call Mike McCarg, and we'll ask Science Mike some amazing, fun questions about Dungeons and Dragons, as well as uh, what the life cycle of a terrasque is. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right. Hello, welcome, Mike McCarg,
3: to Dragon Talk. Ah uh, man, Yay. so thrilled. Yeah, this is exciting. We are excited
1: <laughs> to have you. You are a man of many, many talents, and we want to pick your brain. We have so many questions.
3: <laughs> I actually brought one just in case you do need to pick. It, oh my! So, uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> And I want to get like chopsticks to be the, like
1: burp. the brain for picking, good.
0: The mind awesome. flare behind me is very excited about that.
1: Ooh. Oh yes! Are the Ooh. lights going to turn purple behind you, Greg? Oh, I can't. Is that what happens yes. when the the mind flare gets excited?
0: Turn the mind flare to purple. Let's see if we can actually.
1: There uh, it dun, go. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so. Good.
3: I like that. That's just already set up and ready to go. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
1: The mind flayer wants uh, what the mind flayer wants.
0: It's it, you, you know it's the the tentacles are wriggling ever since you showed that brain.
1: <laughs> so Mike, you're having a book birthday. That's this right. week, right.
3: Second book is out and in the world and uh, already a bestseller, which is really fun and exciting. Are you
1: serious? Congratulations!
3: Yeah. So um, it just
1: came out, right?
3: It just came out, but it hit the uh, hit the Amazon top one hundred right out of the gate. That's and, amazing. Uh, yeah. So really. Really exciting. It's been a great reception. Well,
1: congratulations! What's, so, the,
3: what's the book about? It's called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And it is basically a firsthand account of why what we want to think and feel and do are different than what we actually think and feel and do. So mm. we look at that using, you know, uh, interpersonal neurobiology, behavioral economics, and a firsthand account of my life falling apart. So it's a surprisingly <laughs> emotive science book. Yes. That's super cool. So
1: what... What is, we've talked about this a little bit, but there's so much more, but what is your background?
3: I, uh, well, I did six weeks of community college and it was amazing. (laughs) Um, And then I left uh, (laughs) higher ed completely and did uh, the tech industry and the ad industry, doing a bunch of startups and did that for a long time and really enjoyed it. And (gasps) then uh, started realizing that At parties, people like to pester me with science questions, and started recording those conversations. And it became a career completely on accident. So I'm uh, your basic (gasps) freelance science communicator. (gasps) It's just I love it so much. Puppy's career as a as a podcaster just started. He
1: is very excited. He is a big science nerd. He
3: knows it's he knows it's Dragon Talk. He's excited as I am. Yeah, He thought it was called Dragon Dragon Talk.
1: It's not Puppy Talk.
3: (laughs) Puppy Talk. Knock it off. <laughs> Are you a dragon? You're not a dragon.
0: Quiet.
1: God, you're always trying to steal my thunder. The well,
0: whole... that's such a great intro. Like a story, though. Like that, you you became known as someone who knew things about science, and then had conversations that you thought might be interesting, and then you were like, "Well, let me share those conversations with the world." That's very similar to how me and Shelly
3: started out. Mm-hmm. It's a total <laughs> accident, never any plan. And someone made called me Science Mike as a joke, and then it like stuck. Yeah. So then I have to constantly explain, Science Mike is a joke someone made at a party. I'm not a scientist, but I am really passionate about science education and science advocacy and believe that when people have a better understanding on science, it makes their lives better. It makes them have improved information literacy and ultimately makes them more responsible people and citizens. So I think science is really important.
1: I Me think too. it is. I especially like the way you approach science though, because like you said, like your book is a very emotive book about science, which isn't what you would typically expect. So I think you have a very um, relatable, friendly approach to explaining science. But I mean that's, I was that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's so I was well first of all, is releasing a book during a global pandemic. Yay or nay? That, what would you recommend?
3: I, I'm going to say it's, <laughs> it's an extra challenge. Um, it's hard to get people books. We ran out of books really fast in a lot of retailers. and so oh, no. Some people aren't going to get books until like June, and that makes me sad. Really? Yeah. That far? Oh. Yeah, and then other people have extra books, but the, usually when you have books here and books here, you just make it happen. And right now, wherever you have books is where you can deliver books. Right, Um, and so there's a challenge there. There's also you usually as an author, pre-orders are a big thing, and people don't pre anything during a pandemic. They're like, pre, you know, your book's coming out in two weeks. It's three p.m. I haven't had breakfast. Like, yeah, (laughs) I'm not thinking that way. (laughs) So what was surprising was how little pre-orders there were, and then how many day one orders there were. It's nothing like I've ever seen in my in my career. So, um. And, you know, it's it's I accidentally this is a book about fear and anger and sadness and anxiety and compulsive relationships to food and media and substances and compulsive relationships to digital media and the neuropsychology of video chatting and all those things are already in the book. And so it's accidentally completely timely and helpful to the circumstance we're in. Uh, in a right. very amazing way, and I would still have preferred to release it not in a pandemic. <laughs> like, it no question. It
1: like, <laughs> like people are not necessarily planning in advance, like even two mm-hmm. weeks in advance. It's mm-hmm. all very much like in the now.
3: <laughs> yeah, and but- even if you look at the time of day, because you know, I used to work in advertising, so I love data. I just always love data. And when I look at the time of day people are buying things, people on the East Coast are picking up copies of the book at midnight Pacific. Like, it's just...
1: In the middle of the night,
3: it, wow. right? like, so people are going to bed at, like, three... What I, here's what I think. From, from what I'm seeing on these purchasing habits, is people are waking up at 11 or 1. They're kind of doing work at a diminished capacity because they have, like, chronic stress and their bodies are overwhelmed and they have limited cognitive resources. Then they get bored and browse media... Uh, in what would be the evening and then in the dead of night they sh- they get on Amazon and just like maybe I can get some dopamine if I buy something mm. and right. then they collapse in exhaustion and they repeat the next day
1: Oh is that why we're um why I'm buying a lot of things online I'm trying probably, to Probably that. yeah
3: that's probably it. That's why my yeah. puppy
1: was actually probably barking now because FedEx was here delivering mm-hmm. my giant order from Target
0: and, the, and puppy knows that it's
3: puppy food that's coming.
1: He just got like a giant dose of dopamine, too, because he's a compulsive retail shopper as well.
3: <laughs> well, and also dogs have a funny signal uh, in terms of conditioning. Uh, when they bark at the FedEx person, the FedEx person leaves, and then they create a causal relationship, which oh. is I defended my territory yes. successfully, mm. which means I should definitely do that again next time.
0: Oh, that's
1: really funny.
3: <laughs> Not realizing that. Correlation does not mean causation.
1: They were going to leave with or without you, puppy. No, they're not.
3: uh, Puppies are wonderful, and they're my favorite. And they're terrible at the scientific method, also. Like both (laughs) things are true. (laughs) They don't understand the control group. No, never a control at all.
0: (laughs) Why don't more dogs understand the higher learning? I just don't get it. They need to listen to your podcast, apparently
3: and get temporal lobes to be able to process language that just the one two thing there. Uh, Can you not. let them borrow your your brain? <laughs> the plastic one? Yeah, yeah. sure. The actual <laughs> one. I, I the it's brain for in use.
0: Yeah. I feel like there's a uh, I don't know, my kids would read that uh, book, a graphic novel Dog Man, which I think solves all these oh, problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. This is it exactly. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite
0: books. So you mentioned uh, uh, compulsive shopping and I immediately <laughs> thought of uh my D and D characters, who when they see any type of bazaar or shop, uh, I could spend an entire session just doing that, uh, talking to to random people. And I wonder if that's something that makes sense, you know, scientifically. Like, is there is there, even though it's it's not a real shopping experience, I wonder if there still is something that our our brains are getting out of having a virtual, fake, you know, shopping experience. Uh, around a D table
3: there absolutely is you know one of my favorite things to study is the significant body of um, neuroscience and psychological research around the human brain and story mm. and we understand that like our conscious experience is basically a narration put together by our prefrontal cortex which is a patch of tissue about the size of a quarter uh, typically on the left side of most people's heads tends to be your most active prefrontal cortex but it could be on the right, especially if you're left-handed. And uh, it kind of watches everything that's happening in the world and all the things that are happening in your brain and that are unconscious. And it just like makes a narration, a story in which you are the protagonist. And what we learn about media is that when you tell a story, either you read a story or you, you make up a story on your own, uh, you're brain starts to identify with the protagonist of that story as if it were you. So for example, Mm. if like you read a story and a protagonist learns something in the story, you don't have your usual cognitive defenses where you evaluate that statement. This is actually something that's quite challenging for people that write fiction. So if you write like a detective novel and you make up a medical fact and put it in your narrative, you'll hear it show up in the real world from people as if it were factual because their brains genuinely think they learned that information themselves because they so identify with the protagonist. The same way when we have people uh, reading media that are visual and we do brain scans involving uh, their, their visual cortex in the back of their brain, uh, we see that it starts to form the type of activity it would as if they were actually looking at what's being described in the media. Hmm. Our brains make stories real. That's why stories are so powerful. I think uh, the easiest way to demonstrate that's the case is the amount of anguish that we experience when someone we love in a fictional setting passes. So that could be in media. you know. I won't, I won't spoil even the Harry Potter series, but there's some pretty famous losses in there. But also like when we play Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. and a character in our party dies and the player is sitting right there, our bodies still begin to genuinely grieve that loss. And I know in our setting that I play in, we've had a couple of player desk that really felt traumatic, especially with those those damn mind flayers. They're so tough, you know? So um, when we're when we're shopping in D, because we're so immersed in the story, it becomes real and yet part of your brain knows there aren't magic items and I don't actually have a pouch of gold. So in some way I can get a lot of the dopamine hit that mm. that sense of craving and satisfaction that we get from our purchasing cycle only without the downside of a credit card bill later. So I can totally see plausibly why brains would gravitate towards shops. And y- until you said it, I'm the same way. We, I was in a campaign with uh, my dungeon master, his, uh, a friend of mine named Cameron, and he uh, he took us into this big mythical city in his homebrew setting. And the first thing we did, because we came from kind of like the backwater – part of the world. We wanted to go to all the magic shops and see what we could find. And we almost spent a whole session on that until a responsible character was like, actually, we're on a mission to save the world. Perhaps we should not just be shopping. There's a plot and, here. We need to, we need to get yeah, this plot going. Like, we can get the same dopamine from
0: accomplishing this plot if we, if we do it that way. But it's hard because it, the Instant stakes gratification. aren't
3: there, but there's the gratification. So uh, absolutely, there's totally science to back that up. I love that.
1: I do too. And I remember having a conversation with um, Dr. Megan Connell, who's a, a big D&D fan as well, and, and uses D&D a lot in her practice. Um, but she was absolutely fascinating. And I'm I am going to say this way worse than she could articulate it. So please mm-hmm. forgive me, Dr. Connell. But... She was talking about the psychology behind why people gravitate towards certain characters in D&D and why, like, if there's like a common thread of a trait that you're always picking for your characters or like a a storyline that you always seem to gravitate to, like, why is that? And that there is probably something in your real life that is pulling you towards that. And so I was, I, I love thinking about that and then going back and thinking about all of the characters that I've created and what they seem to have in common. And like the weird thing is that, a lot of times they they left their homes because they like their families believed something that they did not believe, and they wanted to go off and and I'm like well I don't know why I would do that because I love my family we're super close and we've always had this you know strong bond and I she was like she kind of like blew my mind with like well I I I can't even remember like how it, she had phrased it but like are you as alike? to your family as you think you are? Or, you know, like, are there things that your family does believe that maybe you are pulling away from? Or there is actually this physical distance between me and my family where they're in New York and I moved all the way to Seattle. I'm like, I never really thought of any of that. Mm-hmm. And and it's all actually true, but I wonder with your experience with D&D and, and with the knowledge that you have of the human psyche and all that, do you see that in in games like that people tend to gravitate towards certain characters? Is there a reason why we're doing this?
3: Well, I think I'll start with the anecdotal part because that's easier. Uh, just because I'm a d and D player, uh, and the setting I play in, we have a it's a bizarre kind of decolonized West March campaign. So we have like six dungeon masters and like almost fifty active players. Whoa, really? Uh, It's really wild. And that means in our setting, you can play as a dungeon master and a player if you'd like. You just can't be both in one session, right? You can't Mm. self-deal. And, uh, you know, my first character was a Warforged, of course. Mythical robots, (laughs) why not? And then that character died, so I was like, well, time to make another Warforged. (laughs) And <laughs> so then another Warforged. <laughs> and then I got so obsessed, I built an entire city of Warforged and a whole fictional faction of Warforged called Freeforged. And uh had this whole arc about like, you know, some Warforged are are complicit and acquiesced to their exploitation and Eberin and other Warforged. Uh, join with the Lord of Blades to fight for their liberation in a sympathetic way, but they're still also brutal. Why wouldn't there be a set of warforged that just want to live at peace and be left alone? And so I I kind of homebrewed that faction. And then I started creating character sheet after character sheet after character sheet by the dozens to try to flesh out this society of non-sleeping, non-breathing people. And... There, I not a, a, a correlation with I didn't with, realize with until here? people in the setting called me out and was like, you know, there's a joke um, on a show I used to be on called The Alien, the Robot, that I was a robot. And I'm an adult with autism. And because I'm an adult with autism, sometimes I have a really frustrating relationship with my body and with my body experiences. And mm-hmm. here's this mythical race that doesn't have body problems. They don't eat. They don't sleep. They don't get tired. They're just able to do what they do ceaselessly. And I didn't realize I was creating an entire fictional city to role-play a place in which my body was not a limitation. And as I watch other players play the game, and as I kind of think about that through, maybe in an emotionally focused lens, um, kind of an EFT place, that it does seem as if we seem to be drawn to situations that either help us safely face something that we are afraid of in the real world, to claim some sense of agency or empowerment that we don't otherwise have, or allow us to safely explore our challenges in an environment that feels so supportive, which is why the culture around a table in D&D is so important. We're all stuck inside for weeks. And what I'm finding is that as we're stuck inside, There's a reason Dungeons & Dragons, which is already the most amazing role-playing game ever, is so much more popular because people are finding all the freedom in their imagination. But in this time, when we're all so stressed and we're all being traumatized by what's happening in the world, the practices and the culture we create around our table is even more important because people are doing significant meaning-making work around their table Mm -hmm. and they're doing significant kind of psychological self-work as part of the game. And to me, that makes the D&D table such an important and sacred space. I, I really can't think of anything like it. That doesn't happen when you play poker or when you play a board game. That only happens when you come together as a community and tell an epic story. Yeah, and we're all working out our own,
0: you know, tropes and and thoughts and perhaps not consciously, or actually, you know, I would say the majority of us not consciously. Uh, but then you start to think about it and you wonder, you know, why, why do I always play elves? Why, mm-hmm. do, why am I attracted to this, like, weird, you know, mm-hmm. r- race that is somehow exceptional but then also sad? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting that we can have those combined, you know, storytelling moments that each person at the table, you know, whether that's virtual or, or in person... Is you know creating in some ways an idealized version of themselves and mm-hmm. having those mixed together and have all the weaknesses and strengths of those uh, uh, you know idealized versions go against each other is is really therapeutic.
3: Mm-hmm. I play a Rune Knight fighter named Hammer, and uh, and I am the most conflict averse person in the world, mm-hmm. even when it's important. But Hammer. Hammer's ready to fight if it is for a just cause, right? And I, you know, it seems so obvious, but I had to play that character for months to realize that Hammer was a way that I could rehearse healthy conflict. Mm. And that my brain had kind of guided me toward that subconsciously, Mm -hmm. unconsciously. But then once I was there, somehow, after I'm Hammer for six hours, the next time I face a challenging situation in my life, I can kind of bring Hammer out, away from the table, and into a difficult conversation because Hammer knows how to be brave in a way that I do not.
1: That's- so when you started to play Hammer and you found yourself in those situations where conflict would come up, was it easy for you to resolve that conflict or to stand up for as, as the character?
3: No. So that's the funny thing. Uh, well, here's the thing. What I found is when I play Hammer... I have this like almost action movie one-liner wit that's ready to go. So Hammer will say the bravest thing and take the <laughs> bravest action while Mike, the player behind Hammer, is literally quaking <laughs> and afraid, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't, if people who don't play a lot of D&D, I don't think you can imagine how real it becomes if you really get into the setting and really get into the story. And so I'll be aware that like Hammer's got a pretty solid character sheet verging on min max. And yet, he could go down in this conflict. Like, this is not a sure thing, Mm -hmm. but Hammer is brave, I let Hammer be brave. Uh, Over time, I'm learning to be more brave as Hammer uh, and not just pretend, like put on the facade where the character's brave and I'm not, but for me to show up with Hammer. And what I've found is that's starting to translate into my normal life. So if if there's a difficult conversation that would usually put off, Hammer would never put off a difficult conversation because it won't get any better So Hammer kind of turns around and and puts me forward as the character and stands behind me and goes, hey, just have the conversation. It'll be better just to get it done. And it's such a remarkable thing that these stories give for us because in normal media, we just consume someone else's perspective. It is only the kind of participatory storytelling facilitated by Dungeons & Dragons that allows us to create this This relationship of personas where we are producing and curating and crafting on purpose an identity that we can then tap into in a way that we perhaps could not if we were inspired by Gandalf, right? Gandalf is someone else's creation. I can't get in Gandalf's head the same way that I can get into a PC that is quite literally mine. So interesting. I want to ask you something else a little bit different
0: tack, but something related to what you're talking about, which is... When I've been talking to musicians uh, you know, here on Dragon Talk or, or, or in other places, I always kind of say that like, the, the give and take between performer and audience in a, in a uh, music performance is, is the only thing that I've found that is similar, not the same, but very similar to the way it feels when there's five people around a table and they're having this shared mental experience. Um, but I wonder if there's any research or, or anything you can you can talk to about that about what what that is like. Are, are we are we communicating? Is it something about the, the the pulsing beat of of music things that allows everyone to kind of be on the same wavelength? And then is that same thing happening when we're where everyone is gelling and imagining their own perspectives of what the dungeon master is describing? But it's known that we're sharing that amongst uh, uh, you know people that we get the signals and eye contacts and all those things that allows us to be experiencing the same thing at the same time.
3: You know, I think it's a similar outcome from two different phenomena. Mm. Uh, The first thing I would say is humans so often frustrate me and confuse me, myself included, (laughs) until I remember that we are primates. And if you remember that humans are primates, most of our behaviors, even our politics, suddenly make a lot more sense uh, and what's interesting about us compared to all the other primates is how social we are. We are by far the most social of the primates. Even our, the closest competitor in sociality would be chimpanzees and bonobos. And we are like literally three times as socially inclined as those species. And because we are so socially focused, our brains equate social inclusion and belonging with survival. To be excluded from a group, to be ostracized, to be exiled is one of the most stressful things that can happen to a human animal. So we theorize, anthropologists theorize, that before we could speak verbally, we begin to communicate rhythmically and tonally, kind of in pre-vocalizations. There's one idea in anthropology that basic music predates language. Oh. And we see that when people participate in a beat together, something unique happens that is more centered on the right hemisphere of the brain than the left, particularly the right temporal lobe, which is uh, behind your ear on your neocortex, effectively. And... Um, when that part of the brain gets activated and people synchronize in a beat, either with a, an actual beat or an implied beat in a melody, we find that people performing together actually enter a state of cardio synchronicity where their heartbeats begin to align together. What? It's really remarkable. And if there's a big uh, difference in size, you can't everybody uh, have the same healthy heartbeat, then people will find that on every third beat or every fourth beat, they align with this kind of group Pulse. It's really remarkable that yeah. that level of physiological coordination is happening until you remember what we're social primates and the way our species is successful is cooperation. So now let's go back to the table and let's think about this amazing phenomenon of the human brain where when it hears a story, a human brain makes that story real. It moves into that space. It generates in different portions of the brain simulated stimulus that appears like the real thing in a brain scan. And now you have a group of people whose bodies know how to align because they're social and they're immersing themselves in the same story that they are telling together. I can't think of anything that is more participatory in that way than Dungeons and & Dragons and playing music. And I think it's because both tap into the most fundamental survival features of our deeply social brains. You're aligning all the parts of your brain together into a single experience. Your survival functions know that you're safe. So your kind of reptile brain isn't activated or if it is activated, it has some awareness that you're physically safe. What's let you lean deeper into your emotional experiences than you're usually able to access in your daily life. And then your neocortical brain, the kind of reasoning brain, gets very busy building this model of a world that's not around you in a way that allows it practice, allows it to practice the normal model making it does to help you survive every day. And in this way, collective storytelling facilitated by rolling a D20 becomes a way to create a state of synchronicity across two or five or eight brains. Uh, and I, there's no research to back this up. Uh, But based on what I've seen in terms of shared story experiences, where people watch a piece of media and then discuss it where we do have brain imaging, and Mm -hmm. we see similar relationships of brain networks appear in those brains, I would hypothesize that a similar thing happens when we're around the table. God, we got to get some research going.
1: (laughs) Greg, don't you feel like sort of justified that you had this this theory and there seems to be some pretty good proof points that it could be right?
0: correct. I know. I know. I want to get some some of those EKG sensors or you know whatever those things are <laughs> in brain in movies. Maybe the one well, from Ghostbusters that's made out of a colander. I'll put that on
3: uh that's, all my players. Just give it a try a brain imaging. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> well, next that.
1: time I see a drum circle in the park, I'm going to join it. I'd like to mm. see what it feels like. Maybe that's why there is maybe there's something to it like all of those people that are swaying Together in the circle, mm. like they're feeling something. Their heartbeats are aligning. It's amazing.
3: It's a communal experience. That's what it's, we're made for. Yeah. I love Which that. is
1: probably why being in this pandemic is so very difficult for people yeah. because it literally goes against our nature.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are being asked to do something so hard, deny our most basic impulses for belonging in mm-hmm. order to save lives we are we are trying to save people's bodies at the cost of our quality of life and the quali- and the quality of our mental health it is a very difficult trade-off and i have such patience for all the disagreements and an escalation that we experience during that in public and private conversations because what is happening right now is not a natural or normal part of the human experience now i mean we should all be warforged and wouldn't have to deal with any of this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Immunity
3: to disease.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but Solved. I wonder how much, you know, the video conferencing and things like that are substitutes for actual, you know, uh, in-person contact. You know, is there any research about how that is uh, getting close to it but isn't quite the same or, or, or
3: anything like that? There's so much research. That's what's great news right now. Uh, is we don't have to wonder what the uh, physiological and mental health impacts of video conferencing are. One great thing about video conferencing is when you do text-based communication only, you're engaging very little of your brain uh, In the conversation. You're just engaging kind of your rational brain, your linguistic brain, and there's a lot of information that's lost. Everyone knows this. This is not a big insight, but I'll restate it for for the people for whom this will be the first time they've heard this idea. Most communications between people is nonverbal. And when we do text-based communication, we only share the verbal component. That's why it's so easy to fight and say things you would never say in text because your social brain isn't being affected by the other person's body language. Mm. When we go to video mm. conferencing, we get vocal quality. We get vo- vocal pacing. We get vocal tone. We get facial expressions, including micro-expressions. We get body postures. So you would think this is a perfect, perfect simulation of of an embodied experience, except for one problem the research tells us, is anytime we look into a flat square, we've been conditioned to not pay attention and multitask. right? When we're on our work computer, while we're in our spreadsheet, there's a ding and we go check our email and we get distracted and we bounce around. When we watch Netflix, if we get bored, we hit pause and we try the next thing. Or if we're watching Netflix and it's not exciting enough, we grab our phone and we check Twitter. When we're in person with people, we don't have that same modality, Our brains are highly influenced by our environment. And we know from social cues that doing this while you're talking to someone is frowned upon. But when I'm video chatting, look at this. Right now, I'm looking at your face. And right now, I'm looking at my session notes for a game I'm going to play right after this. And my (laughs) eyes look exactly the same. I'll switch back. And because of that, we don't pay a penalty for multitasking. Where video chat falls short is if we take advantage of the technology to lose focus with the people that we're participating with. Right. If we're intentional about maintaining focus on the conversation and being completely present, then it actually is a remarkable replacement for communication, minus one critical thing, of course, which is touch. Human beings like to touch and be touched, again, always with consent and in appropriate ways. Uh, but we like to have touch and to be touched. We tend to shake hands or hug or elbow bump or something people are close to. And so video chat can create kind of a longing over time as we don't get to experience those things. But I do think of the options available in a pandemic, there's a lot to be said for a present focused video chat, which is, by the way, other than the game of Dungeons & Dragons I play with my family, all the games I play happen on Google Meet With video Mm. cameras, it's the only way to make it happen now.
1: Is that because of the situation that we're in currently, or were your games like that?
3: We already were, because we're spread all over a bunch of continents. But um, right now, if we were, we plan get togethers, and we get together in cities together sometime in our game. We couldn't do that right now. It's just not possible. Uh, And so the technology is the next best thing.
0: What are your tips for, um, you know, since you've got experience in, in running and playing in games online, and I know a lot of people are jumping into it now uh, for perhaps the first time. What are your tips for uh, how to run a session so that it stays engaged and people aren't tempted to do the checking of Twitter and things like that?
3: Well, number one, have a bunch of good players and a great dungeon master. Um, <laughs> I don't have a problem of wanting to do something else during my sessions, either where I'm DMing or where I am playing. And part of that means, especially for DMs, but all players should be aware of this. Pay attention to who's getting how much time kind of at the center of focus, the center of attention. We should be thinking of ways in every session that every player gets to have epic story moments. Every player should have an opportunity to push the story forward. And when I'm playing a DM, I pay attention to the person who might be an observer and just doesn't like to uh, or is new and doesn't like to role play. And is just kind of watching. But I still think I look at their character sheet and I'm like, what's a thing coming up where they can make the role and they can narrate the outcome? And I try to make sure that's moving around the table. The other thing, and this is simple, sound and lighting matter. So I've got like good studio lighting here. I've got a 4K cam. I've got a high-quality microphone. When I play, I set up another table. I put a camera on it. I like minis. I like battle maps. I'm old school. And I like to aim a camera there. But I put that camera on. Um, this will only help the people watching not listening. But I mount, the, I mount my phone on a, a telescoping arm so nice. I can do different camera angles during the course of battle so that people get different views of the mini and things to keep it more dynamic and less static. You know, it's just good media design. Uh, and when you do those things, I really, in our setting, we do not have a, a lot of trouble with people checking out during sessions um, at all. Uh, but we also have, in my opinion, the single greatest collections of players in the entire d and is this
1: Is this the game that has 60 players?
3: Well, it's hard to say. We, it, there's people kind of fade in and out as they have time. I can tell you last week we had something like... Uh, f- Thirty-five people play that week in, oh, wow. across four sessions. Okay. Um. And uh, but there's there's a couple hundred people on our server, and probably I don't know sixty who have character sheets that have been active in the game. And then you know there's a solid forty players who don't go more than two weeks without playing a session.
1: Really? Um, so how does logistically how does this Work? How do you just, if you're a player and you're like, I, I want to be in this game and you're a dungeon master and you want to DM, how do you, how does that work? The I DMs
3: wants to post sign up sessions you- when, when they have a time that they can play. We'll put kind of what'll happen in here. So you can just, there's free sign ups or okay. you can sign up with a DM to go on a quest and then that DM takes a fixed number of players over a story arc that happens in a continuous world with all the other sessions. Uh, or players can assemble a party and approach a DM and say, we'd like to go try this because everyone has a world map. And they say, we can try to go over there and do this. So we've kind of done a hybridized West March slash traditional homebrew world. And we also made sure to set our homebrew world toy in which my friend Cameron Hunt designed in the D&D Great Wheel of Worlds. So you can go to a certain city that has something called... a uh, world square and you can go anywhere in the D and D universe which is really designed so that any dm can grab a published wizard source book and take a party uh somewhere else and and save them a little prep and and take advantage frankly of all these books we've all bought as dms <laughs> that's great so that means you know yeah. you basically have created just one
0: shard in the multiverse that is connected mm-hmm. to all other parts of the multiverse um but i'm curious um we, we, we spoke to uh, a player a long time ago who was running a campaign for 36 years and 38 years and he had had more than 200 players all playing in his same world and it was the dungeon master keeping all of those threads going. Um, but one of the things you're describing, the challenge would be how, to, how do the DMs reconcile things that happen in one session versus another and, and what takes precedence or not depending on what really occurs.
3: Yeah, there's a couple ways we do that. Number one, we realize we're figuring this out as we go and we are just super flexible. (laughs) Number two, uh, players can earn DM inspiration and gold for writing a game summary, a write-up of their session and posting it on our kind of shared wiki. Mm. And then the DMs, we dump our lore into a searchable database uh, of everything we create. We kind of are creating a shared Dungeon Master's Guide and a shared player's guide to our setting that is kind of tiered with those levels and the players contribute lore as well. Uh, so we kind of share the work of world building. Uh, and then we kind of treat that as our canon. Whatever goes on that, that website, which is searchable and available to everybody, is what goes in the world. And to be clear, like just my city of Forgeland in that setting has like 30 pages of player-facing documentation and probably 60 pages of DM-only documentation. And that's all just out there for people to grab whenever they need. And all the DMs do that. And the other thing is we kind of take, uh, take the geography and we slice it up. And each DM kind of becomes the lead DM for that piece of geography. And if you have a question about that space, it helps us divvy up the responsibility for, for rulings. And then we have one DM who's like the ultimate arbiter of questions. And uh, I've done some uh, consulting with uh, Marvel Studios and I saw that model work there. So we just ported it to Dungeons & Dragons.
0: That's really awesome it sounds um you know is, is Cameron your friend is he the is he the arbiter that's the the yeah overall he is Mark
3: was his baby it's his homebrew world that he's taken other games in and he kind of lent it to our 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 experiment in a, a larger uh, d d game and it's been a lot of fun and a great success I love it Sweet. so
1: do you think it's fair that somebody who has your wealth of knowledge about human Motivations and interactions is a dungeon master. Like I feel like you can use that against the players.
3: Oh, oh I never do anything against the players. You don't do My any job. like
1: hmm, curious like how would this? Well, how would a human react to this type of? Do you I use know them their as, like, prefrontal cortex
3: <laughs> would give them this dopamine. <laughs> oh, no, I, I mean I, I just want to see what happens. I definitely use you know, a knowledge of behavioral economics and psychology and how I create sessions. But what I am doing is trying to help players feel story stakes, to feel yeah. a real sense of failure, and then do everything I can to create the environment and the tools they need to success and feel like the epic heroes that they are. Uh, that's kind of my feeling goal like every session.
1: That might be your third book. I'm just going to put that <laughs> out there. <laughs> how I to mean, motivate yeah, I mean, your players. Using what did you call it? Behavioral economics. Behavioral economics. I
3: love it. Well, I mean, it's it's this it's when we put up a session in our setting, like there people sign up and it fills, and there's like a wait list of like eight or ten people trying to get into a session. There's a lot of energy and excitement in our game, Uh, and it's because we have players who have a great mindset who are here to tell a story, who are here to be part of a team, and we have dungeon masters who are here to facilitate story experiences and be good, reliable narrators who also get to play as players in the setting. And when you're also a player in the game, there's some way in which, A, it's more valuable, and B, you're more vulnerable. Like when I'm a DM, I have all the dice I want, but when I'm Hammer, Hammer is just another player in our game. And that kind of equalizing factor where there is no true DM who's only a DM, it enriches and deepens the experience for everyone.
0: You mentioned uh, a server and as well as the wiki tools and things like that. Are you using off-the-shelf kind of platforms and 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 uh, uh, software for that, or is that something that you guys did on your own?
3: We've got a Discord server. Uh, we do. Uh, Ross is one of our DMs. Does a lot of kind of custom development to link things together. So we have some pretty compelling Discord bots, uh, and then we have a WordPress site that kind of acts as our documentation repository. We've got a Legend Keeper instance that does a lot of our DM mapping. And uh, then most of our sessions are hosted in Google Meet just because it's a really reliable global technology.
0: And then you run it
3: mostly with uh,
0: an actual table that you've got a camera with minis and... To my knowledge, every DM
3: uses minis and a camera. None of us have done the virtual tabletops. Uh, Mm. Because when you're playing online already, there's something neat and physical and visceral... I go buy, I just got another shipment of minis. I buy minis for every character in our game mm. so that that person has a mini in my game that's always them. And yeah. some of the like more obscure races are super hard to find, and that only makes it more fun. <laughs> you're, a, you're a collector you like hunt uh, at heart, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's like many such D&D a special fans, thing though. when everybody is, is feeling so lonely and so afraid We started this game before the pandemic, but now that the pandemic is here, I'm so glad that we already had this game. It has been uh, a life raft for me and my mental health in this Mm. really difficult time. And that's why I introduced my family to D&D during the pandemic. I actually think this is one of like the best mental health interventions we have is this ability to come together socially and tell stories together in a world where we aren't facing a pandemic and all the scary things that are happening. And instead we are empowered to take epic actions to make a difference in the world. But remember when I said that sometimes hammer shows up in my life, as we go to rebuild our world on the other side of this pandemic, people having an epic character that they created in their back pocket to make them brave and to make them strong and to give them the ability to face whatever we're going to face. I think that could actually change the world we're going to face tomorrow. I mean, I'm just gonna let that sit there for a while. Cause that's amazing. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's something
0: I've been thinking about. I mean, you know, people have asked me a bunch of times as to like, why is D&D so popular? Like right now, like obviously it came out in 74. It had a heyday in the eighties and it's, you know, been around for a long, long time. Um, and one of the reasons I think is, you know, due to external things that are happening in the world, and wanting to feel like a hero or being able to do anything to affect some kind of change, uh, you know, uh, fighting against tyranny and, and, and you know, uh, creating a healthy society, which is essentially what every single Dungeons and Dragons character or trope is is about. Is just mm-hmm. all right. There's some, you know, terrible things happening. Fix it and make mm-hmm. it better. And what you just described is, I think, what uh, a lot of people get out of this game right now, and even more so in the last few months.
3: Well, especially, like, how fast can you burn through everything worth watching on Netflix and YouTube? Pretty fast. How long does it take to get through a source book? (laughs) And how many source books are there? Like, in terms of, like, just the ability to fill your recreational time with quality entertainment... I don't think there's any match for tabletop gaming. It's true. Very
0: true.
1: Do you feel like playing a game like Dungeons & Dragons gives people a sense of control? Which, I I mean, I I kind of feel like it does. For me, even though so much of it is dependent upon dice, Mm -hmm. and I don't have control, but why do I feel like I do?
3: Because... In Dungeons & Dragons, your will plus dice is more control than you ever get in real life. In real life, we don't even get to roll dice. <laughs> Things just fail that's <laughs> in true. real life. We don't wait for the dice roll. It's just we tried the thing. It didn't work. I don't get to roll perception before somebody hits my car. So well, the, the there's, a, there's a factor here. We understand one of the reasons gambling and smartphones are so alluring is the human brain has a particular quirk where it enjoys potential rewards more than guaranteed rewards. So when my phone goes, it might be someone said they liked me on Instagram, and that's a gratifying message. Or it might be, your credit card bill is due. And the fact that it's not for sure a good thing means my brain really focuses on that. And when we combine that with dice in a DD and d setting, the fact that I might fail even if I come up with a good plan means it's a potential reward and it's particularly mm. stimulating for our brains and the way our brains uh, focus. Um, but I also think the reason we have, we feel like we have control is because even with the dice, we do. Uh, I don't know how many times I've tried to jump onto a 10-foot building in my life. Uh, I think it's zero, <laughs> but I sure did that last session. <laughs> and wow, was that fun and exciting and powerful as I kind of jumped on a building to, to engage in this fight. Right. And uh, that sense of empowerment is real because our actions have a greater ability to shape a world with four other players and a DM than our actions with 8 billion people powered by indifferent physics.
0: And how often in your real life are people who are like, what do you want to do? Right. <laughs> and and, and you honestly want you to just answer and what literally, you literally
1: it could be anything. Yeah. <laughs> you can try it. I guess that must be part of it too, is because I mean I'm I'm a lot braver in D and D than I am mm-hmm. in real life. But I also have magic <laughs> right. to help me. Uh I have a a party alongside of me that is there to support me. I can just do way cooler things that Mm -hmm. if some, if I was in a situation in real life and someone said, what are you going to do? I probably wouldn't have a few minutes to really think about it. I'm going to have a sandwich. (laughs) And then just decide to like cast a spell. (laughs) So yeah, I (laughs) guess that would be.
3: And yes. And Uh, I'm an emotionally focused science communicator and I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons and i have been playing for, many months before the pandemic kicked in, in this game I'm talking to you about. And I've gotten used to my actions making a difference. And then I realized there's a global pandemic and a mental health crisis. I may not be able to turn into a literal giant like I can in D&D, but I can make actions today that will either save lives or cost them. I can either physical distance or not. And if I start creating media that helps people cope with their fear and their anxiety and helps them make more responsible, evidence-based decisions, if I help inoculate people against conspiracy theories and the kinds of things that draw people away from wise actions, I, in this real world, may be able to save more lives than Hammer has ever gotten to. But I could have never made that realization if I hadn't had the chance to face a mind flayer and win in the setting of Dungeons and Dragons, mm. damn,
1: we're getting a lot of really good sound bites here.
0: It's <laughs> so good. I think I mean, in it this encapsulates that we have talked about on this show so many times. That that's that's the amazing thing about this game is it's disguised as entertainment, but it actually helps in you know in that way in so many other ways too you know which we haven't touched on but like you know th- that emotional strength i think is the, probably the most important thing that is uh going to have an impact on our world as you said as we as we as we get
3: to to past this pandemic mhm yeah yeah and everything even even the conversations conflict resolution how much practice can we have with conflict resolution in character that's somehow easier than out of character when People want different things in the game setting. We can role-play conflict, and then we can step out of character and say, how do we want to handle this conflict in character, which is something we don't get to do in real life. But that starts building a tool set about how to have conflict and move towards compromise and resolution that isn't available otherwise. I mean, I don't know. I have a lot of friends who are researchers and therapists, and I've been trying to get them onto the D&D bug because I'm like, you need to run a study here and publish a paper There is something powerful here Mm -hmm. in helping people navigate the world and make meaning.
0: Exactly, you know, and I mean that's something that, you know, when I was be asked advice if there's uh, player conflict if two people are having a disagreement about how the game should be run or, or choices that were made, one of the pieces of advice that I've always given, and I don't know if I had the the scientific backing up for it, but it's basically what you're describing, which is like if you guys are having conflict, have it in game, have it as your characters arguing with each other because it provides this layer of um, practice and not real stakes, but even though the stakes are still there and perceivable, and, uh, you know, whenever I've encouraged that, you know, there's there's fights, there's inter-character parties, um, but everyone everyone ends up leaving like, oh, well, we resolved that, and I'm not sure if that would have happened if it was, you know, mm-hmm. actually
3: Ralph fighting with Shelly, you know? Yeah, the game's got to stay in the game. Yeah. You know, we we, and our our setting's not perfect. We do face conflict. And uh, we've set up some pretty strict boundaries around how that conflict happens. You actually cannot initiate conflict with another player's character without the player's consent. There has Mm -hmm. to be a sign off that we're going to have conflict out of character before we do it in character. And we also respect people's boundaries. If conflict becomes too intense, someone can say, I'm out. I mean, we had a really substantive discussion lately Recently, And one of the players said, I'm not in a headspace where I can have this discussion out of character. Uh, I just, I'm going to check out. And I was so proud that that person took ownership of their, their feelings and their, their personal experience during a pandemic that way. When we set good boundaries with the game, again, it trains us how to set good boundaries in our daily lives, which is so important to mental health.
1: Yeah, I think a a big, a big thing for us with our son is empathy and like I've it's, it's a hard thing to teach. Like there's just, I just feel like there's people who are just missing <laughs> that part of whatever part of the brain controls it. But D and D is also really good at um, teaching that or you know making you feel that because oftentimes your character will be in a situation that you as a real life human would never be in. Um, and I just, I think it's, a very unique way of of seeing what it feels like.
3: Mm-hmm. My first player character was basically going to be a murder hobo. I'd never heard the term. But just in a world without consequences, okay, here we go. And I remember the first time a dungeon master narrated to me a goblin's response to being stabbed. Oh. Mm. And I went, oh... Suddenly, there was no more murder hobo. Right, like um, this, this, this story had become a facilitation for actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, especially if you've got a good DM who who tells stories well, it is such an empathy building process. Yeah, uh, because you start realizing, like, no, you can't just pillage and plunder and and do all these things uh, because these NPCs have lives and they want to live and they want to uh they have dreams and goals and desires and if your your dm has built depth um gosh it is such a our our setting has become so empathetic we've had to dig deep into um creature sheets to find kind of pitiless enemies so the players will even engage in combat combat at all so i i started a zombie dinosaur arc just so they were like really aggressive dinosaurs you can hunt without feeling like you're walking into jurassic park with a hunting raffle uh, <laughs> or hunting rifle so uh that empathy thing is so real and adds another layer to the complexity of the storytelling that i think yeah. is delightful it is it is and i think you you touched on
0: something there but i think that's a much bigger con- con- conversation because it is something that some people don't want to engage in, right? Like, hey, there's a lot of moral things that we have to battle with on our daily life. And sometimes D&D, you just want to, you know, bash some goblins, right? Or, mm-hmm. or kill some zombie dinosaurs and not feel, you know, you want to feel like powerful and the abilities that you learn as you're, you know, get leveling up in your character and not have to, um, you know, engage with that. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that like there are going to be peoples and, and, and situations that, you know, you can't just fight your way through.
3: And we built we 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 kind of set our sessions up so that there's intrigue based scenarios where the emphasis is on, is not on combat and is on diplomacy and we we mainly put humanoids in those story arcs and then mm-hmm. we know people that we just want to get away we want to kick some ass and that's where we put like there is no gray <laughs> there just black and white good people bad inhumans like mm-hmm. demons for example make a great kind of like archetypal. No, I'm I'm literally just going to kill and destroy everything unless you stop me. Uh, and it's fun to like give people that stake so that they can play whichever way they need to play today. If I want to go play and I want to go uh, establish diplomatic relationships with a tribe of hobgoblins, then I can do that. Or if I just want to be a badass action hero, well, luckily there's a zombie tyrannosaur terrifying a village. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn, luckily, I'm so happy for that zombie dinosaur. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we certainly talked about a lot of different topics, and uh, I, I'm glad we were able to pick your brain, both literally and physically. Uh, um, <laughs> Real and plastic. There's so much more to unpack, and I'd love to, to continue talking about all this fun stuff. Uh, but if folks wanted to you know, reach out to you or, or, or you know, take a stab at reading your book, what's the yeah. best way for them to, to jump into that?
3: My name is impossible to spell, so just head to asksciencemike.com, which is my podcast website. You can find everything I do there.
1: And then you're, you're doing a virtual book tour, right?
3: I am. I've so got you can like visit
1: you there in every 17
3: city. more stops. So if anybody wants to visit any night, it's interactive. I take questions. It's, it's a ton of fun. So you're you well attended.
1: I, I know that Seattle was on the list, but I can't remember if we've missed Seattle.
3: Seattle was last night. Portland's ah! tonight. Um, I guess
1: I can go anywhere because it's Yeah, visual. you can go anywhere. That's <laughs> nice about
3: a virtual tour. We've yeah. had people, at, last night we had uh, folks from Northern Ireland and the Netherlands in Seattle with us. Well, so
1: oh, cool. my God.
0: Yeah.
1: That's amazing.
3: I love that
0: idea of a virtual book tour. I mean, yeah. uh, you're making lemons from lemonade. Wait, oh, the other way around. <laughs> you're making White Claw lemon flavored from lemons.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you're talking.
0: <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike McCarg, for being here. Uh, you were a delight to talk to. And you really I can't are. wait to learn more about your uh, uh, ongoing campaign. And maybe I might want to join. I don't know. We'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Might Sounds be 202 really people on the server. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Wow. That was such a wonderful conversation.
1: I, I like- am getting his books.
0: Yes. Yeah, we are we are going to get scienced up in here yep. and I want to figure out how to use more, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week with Devin Rue about how to use earth science in creating maps and now I want to use it in, throughout all of our our D&D campaigns. Yeah. Right? Yes, inspired. I'm inspired. You know what else is inspiring? Playing what? games like, during Like what? These wonderful times where we're stuck at home with our childrens, uh, well, Dungeon Mayhem is oh. you know, top of the list. I'm, we play so much Dungeon Mayhem. Is it like a ritual where you know after dinner or before meals you're like, let's uh, yes, get some- let's just
1: get out the Dungeon Mayhem, Doctor
0: Tentaculus. Just-
1: yes, um, my my kid is really good at it. I don't beat him often
0: got to start creating like a meta game of like who is winning in the house the most and what characters they use maybe he is and he almost always
1: uses the rogue
0: oh well maybe he's he's just got a mastery of that
1: loves it loves Loves to pickpocket and loves to have a disguise on so that we can't attack him
0: i also like to have a disguise on so that you don't make fun of me.
1: You're wearing a Greg Tito disguise right now.
0: Exactly. That's why I've got my my Greg Tito wig on, so that no one can know that I'm actually nope. bald, like Ted Danson in Cheers.
1: I hear it's the what? Does he wear a wig?
0: You don't remember this great episode? And then, like, the last bit of Cheers, where he like he's like, I have a secret, and he takes off his a, a hairpiece. No, you I never saw that? that. No, it's like whole thing is like, oh, it's all about his hair, but then he's actually got a uh, no. a, a toupee, as they oh used my.
1: To too bad. Too bad.
0: Well, Clearly, in addition to facts of life, we need to rewatch uh, some some old school Cheers.
1: Hey, man, I got time. I got, you got time. time. To
0: be That's the time. I know you're watching Community, right? I'm you're watching what?
1: Community. I'm watching The Office and Schitt's Creek. Oh my god, it's like seriously Creek. the best show I've ever ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah, we, we restarted that too, uh, in the on the first season, and we want to get so all the way through. Good. It's amazing. It's So good. Um, But, of course, Dungeons & Dragons is a a wonderful thing out there, and we want to spread the word and let as many people know about how to find out more. You can get that at DungeonsAndDragons.com, or you could download the latest issue of Dragon Plus, which is available on your Android or your iOS device. Tons of free content out there, including stuff about accessibility uh, and uh, getting together during these times. Um, Great topical articles put together by, I guess, Bart Carroll, but then also Matt Chapman. Yes. And also Bart Carroll.
1: Yeah, he does a little.
0: <laughs> he does good work. He does good work. Um, I'm excited about it, and you should download it now. You can access that content on dragonmag.com if you don't want to uh, get it downloaded to your device and read it on the go. You should also check out uh, how to play online. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll tout the... Uh, wizards.dnd.com or dnd.wizards.com slash remote um, where there's tons of free content available for you to play on platforms like Roll20, Fantasy Crowns. Uh, you can also access that content on d d Beyond and make tons of characters which I hope you do. We you can ask us questions. I'm at Greg Tito on the Twitters.
1: I'm at Shelly Moo Yes. on the Twitters.
0: Um, and on Instagram. Instagram, I'm Greg underscore Tito. Where are you? Shelly Moo. You're also Shelly Moo on the Insta. Yep.
1: On the Insta. <laughs> yeah. You've you want to learn about first as... grade math, you can um, find me there. I'm going to teach you some first grade math. You are? Yeah. I'm Have really
0: you been doing that either. on the Instas?
1: No, but I'm going to.
0: Oh, okay. What is three plus four million?
1: That is like third grade math, <laughs> so we haven't done that yet.
0: you like millions. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> No. I'm doing fractions now with Edna, which I'm like, I don't know how any of these things work.
1: I don't do fractions.
0: I just don't That's do going to
1: be, we're mm-hmm. going to get, maybe we'll have Edna be a
0: tutor. Ooh. For I Quint. like that. Maybe she will role play as a scholar and uh, teach us all the That's things that we need to know.
1: Whatever works. Because that is not um, going to be for me.
0: Speaking of which. uh Yeah. Role-playing and what is happening with Drunky Two-Shoes. It's not good. You went through a forest. You got to a clearing. There's an open area. uh, And you saw a figure that looked like your littermate, Daryl Two-Shoes. But you realized there was a glint of metal. uh, They were drawing their their weapon. And uh, you decided to Pounce. (laughs) And you uh, restrained them, and they are down on the ground, in your hands, in your paws, uh, and drunky two-shoes. You asked, what did you ask?
1: Where's Daryl?
0: And uh, are you rolling intimidation on that, perhaps? Sure. All right. Let's do intimidation roll. Ooh, a four.
1: I guess I'm a little scared myself.
0: So you asked, where's Daryl?
1: Darryl. Where's Daryl?
0: Uh, and the figure who has the face of Daryl, uh, this feline face that you remember, it's got the exact spots and whiskers that you remember from growing up, Not him. Uh, like, snarls at you and says, You'll never find out.
1: And that's where we'll end. Oh, come on. Yes.
0: What are you going to do next? You'll have to think about it for an entire week before we reconvene. Okay. All right. Have Thanks. we settled
1: on the fact that is this Drunkie the Sorcerer or Drunkie the Ranger? Because I have both. <laughs>
0: She's multi classed. She's okay. multi classed. She's okay. a Sorcerer or a Ranger. Okay. We'll see what happens next. Thank you, everyone.
1: Thank you. We'll be
0: rolling forever. Forever. <laughs>